Welcome back to Reformed Millennials, the podcast where finances, economic trends, and sports intersect. Cam and Joel help listeners better invest their time and money. Also, it's important for listeners to understand that investing in equities, fixed income instruments, and or alternative asset classes involves substantial risk of loss. Any action you may take as a result of the information presented in this podcast is your own responsibility. The information in this podcast is presented as a general educational, informational, and entertainment resource only. While Joel is registered to provide investment advice, this podcast does not provide individualized investment, tax, or insurance advice, nor is it meant as a recommendation to any listener to buy or sell any specific securities or otherwise take any other form of investment action. This is an excerpt of the full legal disclaimer that's available on the landing page of this podcast, which includes whether Cam Pitchers or Joel Shackleton have any ownership or interest in the specific securities discussed in this podcast. Joel, so I was um, wondering what my biggest question was going to be for you today, and I think, I think it's going to be how many strokes are you giving me later today when we're playing golf? I'm thinking I'm going to ask for twelve. Twelve, and for those who don't know this, Cam <laughs> is a eight handicap. <laughs> so to assume that I can then give up twelve would be to think that I'm a plus four, well, which is not accurate. I've only played three times this year, and. As you know, in any negotiation, you need to come in high. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. My, and what I've been trying to teach. So we're going to settle this, at ten at the end of the day. That's I what know. it's going to be. The number one thing for me has always been like, um, the best deal is always uh, mutually beneficial. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this case, it's, in my opinion, <laughs> beneficial for me to win. So I'm going to come back at five. Okay. Let's meet at seven. Okay, we'll, we'll see where we sit later today. All right. Um, so, Cam, let's start with a market update. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to talk about the open because it's there's nothing interesting to talk about there, other than the bunkers being really difficult. Yeah, we might, maybe we'll touch maybe on a little later, later. But yeah, there there was a lot of I guess from Monday to today recording on Friday, the week of July twenty first. There's been. A lot of different tidbits of information. Yeah, the some some heat, some cool. <laughs> I think you know what Twitter's been super fun, and um, I'm, I'm finding myself to realize that Threads lacks intelligence. Mm. Mm, big problem for Mark Zuck. In what sense? No one there is saying anything. It's just a bunch of conversations. About it's a nothing. bunch of it's influencers the- that are now thinking that they need to have a. It's a Seinfeld episode? A voice. <laughs> yeah, it might be. I'm optimistic still. I'm still paying attention. But um, the last, you could definitely tell that um, the, the, the <laughs> it's not as, what's the word I'm looking for here? It hasn't continued the momentum that was. As disruptive? As yeah. It, yeah. I, I was actually wondering if Elon was going to be pumping out a tweet because he has been before threads basically once every couple of weeks about hitting a monthly or a daily active user high essentially or an activity i'm guessing it's cool to smidge for, for sure but I, I wonder just on, on the bounce back from call it two weeks ago when we first when threads was first released mm-hmm. and the initial exodus and all of the commentary and now heading back into i guess probably people using both to a certain degree and whether or not they're I guess just the, the general sentiment around that would be would be interesting, but I haven't seen them release anything. I haven't seen anything yet. But so moving into the market update, I want to start with a quote from J.P. Morgan CFO, and it's based on all the stress that we're seeing in the system. We're pretty confident we're going to see a sharp rise in unemployment. It's going to feel like a soft landing until you actually hit recession, and the the analyst ended up having a follow up question. Would you mind letting us know what unemployment rate is embedded in your ACL ratio? And so the CFO retorted or responded in saying, we believe that that rate is going to be about 5.8%. That is what a recession looks like in the United States. So that's 1.8 to 2% rise in unemployment in America, which would be 
call it 4 million people losing their jobs, which is not nothing, that would be quite significant. So I'm going to contrast that with the most recent email from JC Peretz, who has been pounding the table on this bull market since August of last year. He was going on business on, on Fox Business and CNBC or MSNBC, and everyone was rolling their eyes saying, like, no, we're in the middle of a huge market downturn. The market was probably, the NASDAQ was probably down 33% at that mm-hmm. time. And he's, he's saying, I don't know what you guys are seeing, but Brett's improving. We're starting to see reversals. We're starting to see a, um, a shrinking of the 52-week lows. And um, now he's starting to speak about sector rotation and bonds and, and the, the fact that the consumer just isn't dead. So this is from his, his most recent email. Um, I'm seeing consumer discretionary shot stocks making new 52 weeks, 52 week highs on both a market cap weighted basis and an equally weighted basis. Think about this on an equally weighted basis. Consumer discretionary is up over 36% since the market bottomed last June. We're now 13 months into a new bull market and consumer discretionary is the best performing sector. Consumer discretionary is even outperforming tech. So our industrials for that matter, which is crazy to think about. So over the last couple of weeks, he's been hinting at this sector rotation. And he talks about how in recessions, all stocks go down at the same time. Effectively, all correlations go to one. And in bull markets, it's very much spread out and it happens at different times. So correlations start to actually occur. So when you're doing... When you're building portfolios, it's something that's super important. Risk-adjusted returns is something we always talk about in my industry. But right now, I mean, everybody has seen the the big seven just rally through the roof with Mm -hmm. 70-plus percent gains to, in in NVIDIA's um, instance, 160 or 170 percent. And they've carried this market higher, right? But we're, we're starting to see an actual breadth improvement. Breadth improvement meaning there's more participation from the rest of the stocks. And that is what's to be expected in a bull market that people believe in. Right. So positioning is super important when you're thinking about this. Everybody is starting to um, capitulate. The hedge funds that were short, the people that were out of the market and were in cash are starting to capitulate and they're putting their money to work. And that's where you're starting to see these... Um, you're starting to see the VIX continue to stay around 13. Um, the markets just steadily rise over half a percent here, 0.2% there. And it's just people putting their cash to work because they've, they've effectively said, we got to join in. And I'm not saying that that means that this is the end of what has been a pretty decent rip back from a 20 plus percent sell-off in the S&P. But it does feel like a, it, we need some time to digest as the, the rest of the market catches up, tech's probably going to be um, where people are starting to take profits and they're going to start rolling into to other areas. And um, I expect to continue to see that through August as it's, I mean, most of the important people are in the Hamptons or they're, they're at their mm-hmm. Muskoka cabins or cottages. So, Cam, um, it's been a really good year so far. It's been the best year, start to a year in NASDAQ's history. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's not going to continue. I'm just saying uh, I would heed that that result. All good things come to an end. You've talked about this sentiment <laughs> in general, and you need to be aware of it. I think one piece I wanted to touch on too with the discretionary spending piece, because I think that's a really that's a really important part of what you just talked about, and how that is a the strongest segment, I guess, as as it was described there. And f- is it 43 million Americans that currently have? student loan debt that is currently, yeah, 43 million Americans are about to start paying $400 a month in student loans after a 36 month freeze. So if you can, that's not a small number either. That's a lot of money. And so I think, I think of it kind of two ways. Maybe one is an ignorant way of thinking about it and I'm not sure, but this would be kind of the old man, the Abe Simpson meme of him yelling at the cloud of saying, maybe these folks who have been, essentially getting a break, let's call it that way, or some relief on, on these payments, have been working less for the last 36 months. So now as a result of them having to have this payment again, maybe that means an uptick in 
productivity, people seeking jobs, looking at those openings that we always are hearing about that are out there for people because they need to find extra funds to be able to pay for this. Or it means that this discretionary spending number is going to plummet to a degree based off of obviously a decent subsection, I'm assuming, of that population that's making up the con- the discretionary consumer the- spending is going to make... Um, some dents into that. Well, people with student loan debt are also your largest consumers in your in your economy. I mean, the 25, the 25 to 50-year-old yeah. is who is the lion's share of your, your mm-hmm. purchasers, right? You have, you talk to anyone who's over 50 years old and they bought everything they need in their life to an extent, right? The They're now, they're cleaning out their garage. They're the reason, they're the people having that garage sale, right? And if you start to pull $400 from people's pockets, a, on average in the United States, that is going to be crippling for any consumer discretionary business. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying restoration hardware is necessarily not going to sell as many cloud couches, but I do believe that that's going to be a significant headwind for Samsung. It's going to be a significant headwind for Apple. It's going to be for those that are um, benefiting from students or people that are entering their professional lives, having more discretionary spending, it's yeah. going to be a problem. Yeah, when you got walking around money. Yeah. Tends uh, to get restaurants. Spent. <laughs> Effectively, people have just added 40% of their rental costs to their to their um, their monthly spending, and that's not good. Mm-hmm. So on this monthly spending, I want to talk about I Will Teach You to Be Rich, rich Remit from Netflix. I'm not going to try to um, pronounce his last name because I'm going to not do a good job of it, but I quote tweeted one of his um, one of his tweets yesterday, and I got a response from the tax guy, which was interesting. But base, the the tweet that I quoted was: "You buy a house thinking it's a good investment. Value increases five hundred grand. Now what? When does it actually turn into money for you? Do you sell and move to another house? I mean, if you think about it, at this point, other houses are expensive now." Do you sell and move cities? Maybe, but your friends and family are at that old place. Now what? So this is a situation, he, he mentions that this is a situation for other people. They bought houses years ago and are sitting on massive gains, um, but they're still trapped. It's their house rich, but they don't know how to use it and turn that investment into actual cash. Um, and he's effectively saying, oh no, you could do a cash out refi. That's what everybody else has been commenting in his tweet thread. And he's mm-hmm. like, I mean, he then references history, the 2006 to 2008 timeframe where people were doing cash out refis. They were either reinvesting and buying another house and blowing each other up. I think, quite frankly, he's talking his, his opinion here, which is he sells a, uh, a platform or a, um, a course on renting versus buying. Mm. And I, I've long been someone who believes that renting is a good idea. And I still do believe that to, in a, very, to a certain type of person. It makes a ton of sense. That's your do as I say, not as I do. Yeah, as I buy a new house. <laughs> the, the, the thing that I do want to talk about is that he had a really good response from a guy named Travis French, who I think nails this. So he says, the alternative to buying a house and accumulating wealth is what? Being insecure, you have a place that you then could lose because the lease is up or you, you end up moving very often. Your, your, your home security is always up in the yeah, air. Yeah. Um, the equity that you build in that home is, is well, yes, a bonus, but it's the security you get from the house that he, he really focuses on here. And Rami actually responded to him saying, he, he basically said, what are the alternatives to accumulating wealth? And he said, there's three. And he said, equities, so you buy some stocks. Um, you can invest in a private business, which is obviously a very good opportunity and I think a good and, alternative to buying a house. And risky. Yeah, and then there's some savings, which is not exactly the best thing, but it's still pretty good. Um, I think that for me, what is missed here is actually the fact that um, (laughs) the alternative is you have, especially if you're somebody who hasn't achieved a significant amount of wealth already, or you don't come from a family that's done really well, the upward mobility of somebody who is coming from a household that rented is I would I don't know the statistics here, but I think that um, especially in America and Canada, if you are coming from a rental household, you don't have the stability as a child 
that is required in order to make that jump up in society and improve upon your parents' standard of living and, and grow. I think there's something inherent about going to the same school, being surrounded by other more wealthy people, and then how that contributes to your upward mobility as a professional or an, as an adult, and then how you then surround yourself with, with family and, and new partners. That, to me, is very difficult to find in a rental community mm. or even just finding that upward mobility and in, in investing in something else. I think the only true alternative to that is small, small businesses. But real estate, especially your primary residence, is something that, I mean, I think I've changed my tune a little bit on this, but I think what I was missing when I was in my 20s was the fact that what is actually comes from the stability of a home, not the fact that you, it makes your life better. It's mm-hmm. just the stability that comes from it, especially for your children. Yeah, some of the intangibles, I think, are obviously very hard to measure and would be, in, in terms of researching, those measurables would be very difficult to see, I would think, but, or at least it would be complex. I'm not, I'm not saying it would be impossible to find the answers, but I can attest to the fact that that's what my parents told me and like specifically my dad in relation to like homeowning and making decisions from that standpoint, he actually preached that same thing, like from a stability, like he talked about stability and having like being secured in one spot. Cause I think when you're younger, obviously, I, I think it really depends on where you're at in your life cycle. Maybe mm-hmm. you boil it down. You talked about being in your 20s, having that mindset. You've never, I can't remember, have you ever rented before? No. No. But just like, but the idea to you was not foreign. You're like, well, this would make sense. Like, I think I would continue doing this yeah. from this standpoint. But then as soon as you hit those new life milestones, then that security piece and, and that the, the idea of having something constant Mm-hmm. becomes more attractive to you. And then not to mention, obviously, the piece where historically investing your money in a home was a very safe thing mm-hmm. and it was going to appreciate 300% if you held it for 15 years. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be a nest egg for you to then make the next step in your life. Potentially. Potentially. Cash out refi. Cash out refi. Or, but, or, or I'm just saying, like, I mean, it, it, depending on where you're at again in your, in your life cycle, is that if you're able to downsize at that point, from what you have, then hopefully you have more cash in your pocket to make your next purchase or potentially transition at that point into a rental. And so I think that needs to be the context, obviously, is whether or not or where you're at in your life cycle and who else you have to depend on you and who you have to depend on to make those decisions. I think it's really easy for a 22 or 23 year old kid who just went and did their undergrad in Europe, who then is gonna go spend his summer in Miami. This hypothetical person sounds awesome. I know. Well, it sounds like his life's awesome. <laughs> He's probably a challenge to deal with. Um, and then through his t- like mid-20s, uh, goes and does his MBA abroad again, and then can, can justify the, the renting um, into their 30s. But that person likely comes from money, doesn't have to have that benefited one from being in a home that was probably stable, stayed in the same place, went to the same school, had all very similar standard of, or whatever, class of people around him. Mm-hmm. And his, all of his, uh, his network is because of that. Uh, and he doesn't need to compound that. But for those that are trying to move up, I think it's imperative. It's the, the Canadian American dream of owning a home. I think it's truly based off of the fact that it is what, um, is what we compound our lives around. Mm-hmm. It's it's, and this isn't what everyone needs and wants. I'm just saying that if your 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 hope is to um, make your your children make more money than you, I think it's really important to ha- to put them in a place in which that's possible, and uh, consistency in children's lives. I think is is imperative to that. I think that was one of the best things my mother ever did for me. So um, the fact that she surrounded myself with people like you and families like yours where great parents, stability, sports, education, all those things were focuses of all the families around me. It, it cemented that for mm-hmm. me and it did for everybody else. Right. So yeah. Nature, social contract there. Nature. That, yeah. Nature versus nurture. And obviously you, you are who your environment is and, and all that jazz. I, a lot of old sentiments that, that ring true in, in the context of this conversation. So I think it's an important thing to consider when making those decisions and going forward, especially when, again, when it's not, you're not just worrying about yourself. So 
Yeah. So where are we going next? Because I could either talk about, and I, this isn't in the doc, but I wanted to bring it up because mm. I was listening to it before I picked you up at Volkswagen today. Mm. Um, there's Blama, which is Facebook's um, uh, chat GPT, effectively, their language model, has been made available and free to developers or those who want to put it onto their onto their own personal computer, their phone, whatever, to then uh, develop around and on top of. It's kind of like the Android model or um, Linux back in the day. Like they're open sourcing um, a language model for those to, to use, which is great because it doesn't come with the, the licensing burden that ChatGPT has. And this is in concert with the, all of the releases that Microsoft just recently dropped, which I don't know if you noticed, but did you see what the per user cost per month is to integrate ChatGPT or GPT-4 into the Microsoft suite? They did not. 30 bucks a month, US. And to think about how many people are actually using, I mean, just think about your office, who's the subscription services for, for Microsoft is already pretty high. Mm-hmm. Tack on another $360 per person per year. And now that's almost, that's, that would be a tripling of their revenue per user at a large firm. Yeah, that's a, that's a big number. That's a lot of money. This business, there's a reason why it has garnered such a market cap improvement or increase in these large caps. They are, I mean, you go and you look at the AI ETF and the companies that are in it, nothing has really benefited from this, this AI um, boom. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. Uh, the only companies that seem to be sopping up all of the market cap are the big seven mm. because they have all of the capability and they have the distribution. Yeah, the infrastructure the in cases, place. Right? Yeah. And obviously they've built this killer app. ChatGPT is, the consumer can use it. I have an app. It's the first one bottom left of my phone that I can just access it whenever. I can access it like I can access Google. That is powerful. It is something that people can see use. And it's really starting to, to find new use cases in these large caps, which is concerning for sure. It's been since, I think, the 80s, since the, the last time that we've had this much concentration in so few stocks. And it doesn't seem to be slowing down. I don't know what is going to stop it. I don't know what kind of antitrust law is going to, to mm-hmm. break this down. But I think this is a good transition into Bill C-18 that the Liberal government has um, enacted in Canada, which has, I think, interestingly, I've had a lot of different conversations about this of late with people who are in support of it or are annoyed by it. And you added this to the doc, and I thought it was a really good um, addition because I didn't see it. But Google cuts out Canada from its AI chatbot launch as it's navigating Canada's regulatory uncertainty. The AI chatbot will be launched in 230 countries and territories except Afghanistan, North Korea, Russia, China, and Canada. Yeah, which of these things is not like the other? (laughs) I mean, I'm not saying. I have a few friends that work at Google who have been using BARD, Mm -hmm. and a lot of them actually think it's superior to that of ChatGPT. No bias there at all. No bias. None. Um, But let me read that again. Territories except Afghanistan, North Korea, Russia, China, and Canada. I think it's a bit of a shock value statement for sure. I think the fact that we have this regulation that has been passed as of June 22nd. So to give a little bit of background, so the Federal Government's Online News Act Bill C-18 became law on June 22nd. The law will require tech companies like Google and Meta to compensate Canadian news organizations for the content that appears on their platforms. The Liberals argued that Bill C-18 would help the Canadian news industry, which has seen massive drops in advertising revenue over the past decade. The bill has been sharply criticized um, by the tech giants. In response to the passing of bill of the bill, sorry, Google said on June 29th that the search engine will remove news links when Bill C-18 comes into effect. Meta also said it would be pulling all news content from Facebook and Instagram in Canada. Both companies had previously warned it would remove content if the bill became law. So 
the statement about the territory, like not rolling into those territories, like obviously when you are <laughs> dealing, navigating something that is brand new from a regulation yeah. standpoint, you're not just going to jump in. You're not going to invest a bunch of money into rolling something out that may not be able to be rolled out to the same degree. You don't want to have to pull things back because from the sounds of it, uh, this Globe and Mail article that I pulled out by Samantha Edwards, it was published on, originally published on February 28th and then just recently updated on, on July 10th. And basically talking about how this will essentially take effect by the end of this year, the end of 2023 is when this will take effect. And so I'm sure there is some stark defenders and stark supporters of what this bill is trying to do. I think you can probably, if you take an objective look at it, I think you can probably understand where the, I guess the, the, the entire conversation around disinformation and the news cycle and where we are getting our information from has been a hot topic since, call it, I think 2016 presidential election is when this really started coming to, to a head and talking about interference and the use of, the use of some of the, the biggest platforms like Google and Meta, et cetera, to get information out and how that can influence and, and change things. Whereas obviously historically the, the institutions that are our news channels and newspapers, et cetera, obviously the, the, we can get into a different conversation about how they are biased and different based on their funding, et cetera. But I mean, that, that's, that's common knowledge. But that objective, like stating facts and supporting things with with information, um, and giving context to things, is is so important. So I can see why there's there. I mean, go figure. Obviously, like regulation around this is is being viewed as being needed. I don't know if this is the right way to do it. I'm not smart enough or informed enough to know what the alternative would be. But the concerning piece, obviously, here is that you have a let's call it revolutionary technology that is being like rolled out in full in, I mean, every other country other than the ones you just named that I was saying, like in terms of the developed world, all of these, these countries that compete with Canada for a lot of things. Is it awesome that just because we have a geolocation in Edmonton that we're not going to have the same kind of access to some of these things as somebody in Washington? I, I don't think so. Yeah, I struggle with this, and I, I tend to echo your sentiments in, in saying that I don't think I have the the knowledge and understanding of the bill or not the um, ins and outs. Like, I mean, like, that's the thing. Like, you do have to really dive into for a lot things. of this. Um, I'm sure. However, I always tend to push back when government tries to stand in the way of innovation. I. I it's just counter to our culture, especially in the Western world where, where capitalism reigns mm-hmm. um, to be dominant. Uh, when you look at the other four participating countries, there's a stark difference in their, their economy, their incentive system, um, the way in which people operate. And to, they've kind of almost, I would argue, especially in the case of China, they've honed their ability to be different and still push forward. Whereas the other countries are stuck in, I don't know, 30 years, 40 years behind us. Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, I, I take a look at what's happening here and the red tape being put up to, and I struggle to see wh- who it's benefiting. So is it benefiting the, 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 the journalists? Is it benefiting the, the, the media companies? Is this so that our overarching um, tech super gods, which, I mean, it's six or seven businesses that own everything. Are they trying to get in the way of that and set a precedent here? Or is it something in between? I I struggle to see what they're trying to accomplish here. And I don't love that it's our elected officials that are doing this for us, because I don't believe that that was the platform they ran on. I don't think that's why they they were all elected. That didn't feel like it was for me anyway. Mm. So I'm I'm having problems with this because it just doesn't seem to represent what Canada is asking for. It's always been a hot button issue, media, and I think that government getting in the way of it 
and regulating it has not been what the, the majority of Canadians are asking for. Mm-hmm. It's been quite the opposite, actually. And um, they're now making or giving Facebook specifically this out. They've been hated for so long. They've been blamed for all of the, the negative rhetoric, for, for influencing the, our, our children and our, our teenagers. And now we're reversing it. And I think that they've done a lot to, we're just effectively giving them more ammunition to, to not be the bad guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, Elon Musk has taken so much pressure off Mark Zuckerberg that he's now not even hated by anyone. <laughs> the stock's up well over $300, largely because of um, the, the image improvement that, Mark, that has been replanted onto Elon Musk, who's now the big evil bad man, mm-hmm. and the rest of media hates. So this is just a long-winded way of me saying that I think that Standing in the way of technological innovation never ends up um, doing what it was meant to do. And in reality, it's going to harm Canadians more than it's going to benefit us. And the small, if our media businesses aren't able to make a go of it with these new business models, which is unlimited free distribution, that they can't figure out a way to either come to a subscription model that um, is profitable for them yeah, to get or, reach. Yeah. Or, or to be interesting enough so that they can generate good advertising revenue. Mm-hmm. Well, then whose fault is that? Because I look at the Paul brothers and they're buying $16 million houses and then you have the Globe and Mail, which I get it, should be to an extent protected. Mm-hmm. And it can't do that. Maybe there's a happy medium here. I'm not saying they need to go I'm to I'm sure there is. But I think this article actually does a pretty good job of like outlining things. Like not like you you would assume based off of the context of the bill that anyone writing in the in the space, especially for a larger institution, would be against it. Mm-hmm. But I think it gives a pretty balanced discussion through yeah. it, which is good. The globe always does that. I, I Yeah, this isn't an yeah, they don't sponsor us, but we appreciate the information. <laughs> At least uh, give us a free subscription. <laughs> Please. Uh, the the two I got two things I wanted to say about that. One, I just immediately thought of a Jurassic Park quote. And when they say, you know, um, is it Dr. Gold or no, Jeff Goldblum's character? The best character. Yeah. And he says, you know, life finds a way. I think when you stand in front of stuff like this, it's, it's going to find a way. It doesn't yeah. matter. And then but the second point is, and I, this is kind of a... I guess, counterpoint to this and talking about maybe why Canada or the government thinks they need to take this stand or try to attempt to do something to curb the effect of, of this new technology. I think AI might be a little bit of a different beast when you compare it to other innovations. And that might be an ignorant statement because anything at the time of first adoption is going to be pretty revolutionary. But the I would be I guess what I was was going to say is I would be promoting ways to educate people on how to use this and to and to do like essentially going down to the institution side of things to make sure that people understand what it is that they're that they're accessing and that they're reading like that's going to be I think the most important part on a go forward basis which is going to take a very long time because there is the fracturing of media that we've talked about countless times mm-hmm. is that you are going to be the, the wealth of information is endless and it can become quite overwhelming, but you need to be able to understand that. And just like what, when I was looking in, I was looking into becoming a journalist when I was a young kid and like the thing that was preached at least in terms of the core of, of journalism and, and writing an article or presenting information is that you would you need to have everything you know supported and, and it needs to be a balanced argument you need to understand both sides of anything and that's not obviously not where we're at these days where a, a headline article is basically all that matters because you need to get the click and then hopefully that person stays on your article for more than a minute to actually see things and click on the next ad that you're getting paid for but I don't think this is the, I don't off the top without knowing every intricacy of this bill. I don't necessarily think it's written in a way that is going to be a productive thing in the, in the short term. But maybe like you said, there's some middle road where you can come to where there needs to be some controls on this, where some of the institutions that are, have been around in Canada for a long time can continue to have to be, to succeed. Mm-hmm. 
but at the same time, not limiting potentially people's access to information that others are getting in countries right next door, which I think that's something that you don't want to be viewed as. Cause like, again, you, you fall into the trap of, or you fall into the sentiment of government control and that's not going to sell. That's not going to sell. So let us make our own decision. We saw how that, that worked out during the pandemic and I mean, not to even have an opinion on any of that. It's just that that is no, for sure. a just, polarizing topic. It doesn't matter how you cut it. It's that's not. It doesn't matter what your opinion is, where you sit on that side. Having that, having that argument out there is is not good for anyone. No, hundred percent. So, in a roundabout way, that's where I kind of want to jump into DJ Khaled here. <laughs> no, naturally, <laughs> naturally. Um, uh, I actually want to first touch on on the Netflix most recent quarter, yeah. Quickly, yeah. Because I mean, we're we're banging the media drum, but holy moly, what a! This is the first business that has done the successfully out of the that that free money era mm-hmm. convert from being a loss at all costs so long as you're growing or growth at all costs and the money will follow and they're finally converting where they were spending hundreds tens of billions of dollars to build out their their um their strategy mm-hmm. to, to grow their subscription base to a point in which it's at mass scale and no one can go without it a lot of businesses have tried this i think um some to different levels of success but it's unlikely that uber ever pays back its initial or how much money it's actually burnt mm-hmm. building its network. Whereas Netflix, in my opinion, is just getting started because the rest of the media businesses that didn't go subscription have burnt up so much money. Their shareholder base has um, effectively said or pushed the button They're They're calling when we're done. We mercy, mercy. They, they now have to switch back to the HBO model, which is sell content to Netflix and try to profit that way. And it's over, in my opinion. You have two. You have Disney and Netflix that have won. In Canada, we have Crave, which is probably going to stick around. That's the HBO alternative, and it's been kind of an aggregated uh, uh, platform there. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have Hulu down in the United States. But Netflix, largely, has become our new cable box. And they earned it because they the strategy of Reed Hoffman, the, the fact that they are able to pr- um, pull this off and then build a ad network layer mm-hmm. that nobody thought they could, they would be able to do has been really fun to watch. Um, and it's, it's probably just getting started. It is now going to become this insane cash flow machine. Everybody is going to capitulate. They're going to start selling their, their content back to Netflix. You're going to see Seinfeld back on there. You're going to see Office back on there. You're going to see all of these great old plat or um, uh, pieces of content, mm-hmm. for lack of a, I'm, I'm missing the actual word for that. But that's all coming back because they are they've won, and their price they now have pricing power. They're going to be able to increase it every six months, yeah. um, and then they'll have different layers, and then you'll be back to either watch. If you only want to pay ten bucks a month, you're going to get ads. Yeah. If you want to you want no ads, you're going to be paying eighty dollars a month or a hundred dollars a month. That's where it's going. Yeah, I, 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 so Joel has kind of been talking around a couple like articles or pieces of, of information that we had shared with each other ahead of the, ahead of the podcast. So check out, we talked about app economy insights on, on Twitter a ton of times. So they had a bunch of releases this week with, with earnings releases. And so Netflix is included. So definitely from a graphic perspective, anyone's interested in seeing that or found those interesting previously, definitely check that out. And then I was reading a New York Times article um, published on July 19th from Nicole Sperling. So just to kind of give some numbers around what you're talking about. So Netflix added millions of subscribers in the second quarter and saw a rise in revenue. Uh, They added 5.9 million subscribers to bring us a global total to 238 million. Its revenue rose 3% to 8.2 billion from the same period last year. And the company also said it had 1.5 billion in profit in the quarter, a similar number to last year at this time, which when you consider being equal quarter or year over year from a, from a quarter a Q2 perspective. Think about all the inflationary pressures that we've, we've gone through in the past 18 months. Pretty impressive. We, this also aligns pretty well with 
the consistent messaging or the consistent conversation that we've had in this podcast anyways about the the transition to focus on profit for a lot of these companies and I think going through some of the app economy insights numbers as well you can definitely see if you were to kind of search Netflix images on on that Twitter feed over the past how long he's been doing it you can see where there's been some cuts made in terms mm-hmm. of just, uh, discretionary spending on things like R&D for example and, and certain wages. Green lighting everything. Green lighting everything, exactly. So being much more focused. So to your point, they've they've been able to go through this transition. We would have probably talked about Netflix plan to transition to this ad model, call it this time last year, mm-hmm. when they were first kind of rolling it out. And we said it's, it's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out and whether or not it's going to be successful or at least be able to garner enough support to maintain a growth in revenue. I think the idea around continuing to be profitable is could have been maintained just because of retaining and increasing, et cetera. But the fact that they're continuing to grow and, you know, 3% is not nothing uh, to, to $8.2 billion on a year over year comparison. So it's very, very interesting to see. And I, I can't agree with you more in terms of the focus on this for them to be something that is they, they want to become a, an afterthought in terms of your spending. Well, they, they want to be your, I, I've, I've long used this as an example, probably since the beginning of me managing money for a living, but there's few, there's few things that um, people will cut from their, their wallets or it'll be equal to your puppy in your home. Mm-hmm. You will put your kids out of private school before you stop feeding your dog when things start to become expensive in your life. I think Netflix is one of those things that just remains forever. It's something you can't get rid of. The value is unmatched with the exception of probably Amazon Prime. And that is a powerful place to be. It's something that you can, it's one of those blue chip businesses that are immovable. And that's Mm -hmm. a powerful thing to have built. And it deserves to have a huge multiple because of that. It deserves to have all of those things. If you think about it in um, its comparison to what has been that in the past, right? What are the things that you just do not remove from your from your monthly spend, mm-hmm. right? And I think it's become that. Yeah. I think the only other thing I was going to mention from this article that I read, which is definitely a headwind for them, is the, the ongoing writers slash actors strike that's mm-hmm. going on. And they did mention this a bit in, I, I think they were a little bit mum on the on their, call it narrative in, in their earnings releases, but it's definitely going to have some short-term effect on production and release dates on things because of this ongoing strike. And I, I won't give an opinion on where I sit on, on the strike. I think obviously they have... There's been a lot of change, and we've just talked. We've been talking about media this entire episode. There's been a lot of change in media in the past, call it five years, and it continues to to continue to fracture and change and become different in, in this streaming area uh, era. Sorry, and I think they this strike might go on longer than people think, just because you know. Again, we were talking about people's livelihoods here and they obviously feel like at the end of the day there's been a lot of cuts to your point to this focus on on profit and not just like you said green lighting everything and having i can't even remember the, those employee numbers but i remember when they did their first round of cuts in netflix it was it was pretty astounding in terms of how many people they had on staff originally mm-hmm. and so there's obviously been some some big shakeups in that area and this this strike is not nothing in terms of their the effect it's going to have on the on the rollout of of content over the next call it year year and a half just because obviously all these things are for the most part long-term projects right so you know what the media industry has really had it tough and whether you're an actor or you are a writer or you are someone in between who's working in production um you've run into multiple headwinds and that's a changing landscape which i when i when i say that i'm I'm referring to distribution distribution used to be a blockbuster Uh, now you have social media social media has this um added benefit where distribution's cheap 
but that also means that your stand, or your um, barrier to entry is lowered, right? And now anyone can be entertaining. So now that has created a, a market where your perceived benefit or skill, where maybe you're focused or you're, um, you were able to get in and you had the right credentials, which gave you the, the, uh, the salary to then to continue in the industry. So you had less competition during your career, but mm-hmm. now you have TikTok stars who, and, and Snapchat stars and, and Instagram stars who are taking your position for very little in, in, in terms of effort and, um, the and, and risk, yeah. right? Yeah. And that is a challenge, right? And then you compare that or compound that on this, this changing business model, which has gone to subscription base. And that, unfortunately, is aggregated to these large, large tech companies who perhaps have less personality. They don't care so much about the, the individual. And whether that's bad, good, or otherwise, it's just a reality of today. Yep. So, I mean, while YouTube has given everybody a platform and everyone's able to have their product on a In, shelf. Including Reform Millennials, please like, subscribe. <laughs> to the YouTube channel. Yeah. <laughs> I think what's really important for anyone listening to this that is just asking, well then, okay, what do I do about it? I think you need to think about how in the past you used to make money directly via salary mm-hmm. or you would get compensated as a commission. You need to think about other ways of, uh, of earning that income mm-hmm. because it's not going to be delivered to you the same way anymore. So be creative, think outside the box. Um, if someone's producing content and it's free, why and then you figure out ways in which you can profit off of that and that's probably going to be a good place to start i don't know what that is for everybody but mm-hmm. i know that i've had to think about that um I'm, i always lean on the the idea of a thousand true fans um if you have a thousand people that think that you're interesting you can build a business around it so let's get that number to 1000 subscribers yeah. say, road to 1000 yeah. uh speaking of Again, we've, we didn't go into this with a plan of it being very media or so media-centric today, but another, speaking of TikTok stars who are doing interviews, you just saw an, one in recently with Drake and that he's potentially super early on this wave of, of this specific TikTok interviewer. Yeah, media, I don't know how Media early. mogul, maybe. She's, uh, she's got almost a million followers on Instagram and, and on Twi- TikTok, she's even bigger. But Bobby, who is has a very unique interview style. I would call it um, kind of... Cringe? No. <laughs> you know Zach Galifianakis? Oh, yeah, like between, between two, two ferns? Yeah. That's, this is the female version of that. Awesome. Um, I would say less scripted, for sure. So it's a, definitely more off the cuff. Um, but her dry humor and her ability to not laugh when doing this is impressive. So... The clip that has gone viral is Drake being interviewed by Bobby in at his house in Toronto. And the interview is wide-ranging. It's really fun. Drake is, in my opinion, the most plugged-in person to social trends that any other person in music probably ever has been in history. His ability to turn what most people think is average music, I disagree, obviously, but that's what kind of is... It's, it's Drake being an average musician is what people say about um, Nickelback being crappy. It's just what people say, mm-hmm. right? And what he isn't average at, and I think it's inarguable, this is objectively a fact, he is an incredible marketer. 100%. Knows exactly where the puck's going. He is the Wayne Gretzky of knowing where the puck's this going is, when it comes to I actually was making the comparison to, we've talked about Ryan Reynolds on the podcast a few times. And I think to your point about people's sentiment around people love Drake. People hate Drake. Some people think he's up again with the mass amounts of entertainment in the music industry that's available to us. I think if you ask if you and I are not huge country uh, fans from a music perspective, I listen to a country song. I think that sounds like the other one Mm -hmm. that sounds like the other one. I'm sure the same sentiment can be said for a call it average music fan. You listen to Drake, you listen to take your pick of 150 other rappers slash R&B artists. You're going to be like, well, it's a lot of the same sounds. Like, I mean, maybe I only listen to this for like, it's really good beats or like the, you know, this one's a really good lyricist, but on average, maybe I don't really find that big of a difference between Mm -hmm. A to Z in terms of um, an artist. And I can appreciate that comment that there is a lot of, it's really easy to blend in these days and have something that 
potentially could be still received well if because you can essentially digitize and every the, the the raw talent piece around being a musician is not not the same as it used to be but drake ryan reynolds again ryan, if you were going to pick ryan reynolds out of a he's not the best actor of all time he's not at the top of his of his um of his class in terms of acting chops i think that's not a not an off off beaten statement to say that great marketers great obviously great people around them too in terms of a management team he, the, he has spent or they have spent money in the right areas to put people around them that are first on some of these waves to connect with fans and connect with various age groups and so this is an example again where i think the other thing too and in, actually this applies for both drake and ryan Reynolds as well they don't appear to be very thin-skinned like i think drake is a lot of times talked about being thin-skinned the fact that he can be self-deprecating and go on to do things in media that gets that goes viral that sometimes he might not look like some people might be embarrassed by some of the content that he gets promoted in mm -hmm. and he doesn't appear to care about that at all like he can be self-deprecating he has a lot of personality i think a lot of that has to do with his he kind of grew up in media as well as, I mean, for those of you that might be listening to this in their 20s, you, it was definitely before our time even too, like Degrassi was, we would have slightly missed that in terms of probably watching it religiously, but he kind of grew up in, in, in media a little bit in a smaller fishbowl in Canada, but I think that actually prepared him pretty well for being able to handle everything and being able to connect with people. Yeah, social EQ off the charts. Um, so if, I also need to, he released that poetry book. Yeah. I need him to now release a cocktail book. Cause obviously everyone can't see this right now, but in the, in the interview, he has this delicious looking cocktail of sorts. And I want him, <laughs> he's always got a wine glass looking yeah, drink yeah. that doesn't have wine in it. No, never wine right to the brim. Something, yeah, something to the brim. that has got soda and juice and obviously some liquor, but he, even to that point, like he did that poetry book. I wonder how many of those have sold. I don't know. You see Khaled promoting it. Yeah, it's amazing how he Khaled just, reading it was how hilarious. He, how he gets these this reach to things that are just completely random. Like even like I think I gifted you one year for Christmas yeah, one of his candles. It's on my desk. Yeah, it smells great. It's all these just random little things that he's able to. He has his fingers in a lot of things. Hundred percent. And it's very interesting to see how he's able to to make it all work. Yeah, it's impressive to say the least. Uh, Cam. From a recommendations perspective, mm -hmm. I don't have a ton. Well, I, I think you talk about that James Cameron story. I know. Maybe next week because it'll hold on. Okay. Because I think it plays really well into a topic. Okay. That we'll talk about – that'll be our interesting topics next week. We'll talk about James Cameron. I'll talk about – you had mentioned DJ Khaled earlier, and then we kind of skipped over it. Yeah, we did. And about Rock Nation and the Ryder Cup being it. Yeah, so we'll what, tease that for next week. It's pretty Rock Nation and golf. How did we not see this coming in 2023? <laughs> um, no, but I actually just check out the newsletter this week. I have a lot of reads that people should check into um, for everything that I've been reading this week. I have a ton there. It's crazy from reads to listens to, to books. It is uh, the dog days of summer and people are going to be spending time on the beach. So I have some good stuff to read to make you a little bit smarter, maybe a little bit more interesting, um, more so interesting than me. So Give that a check. Cam? That sounds great. Talk to you next week. Look forward to it.